Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's special edition of Women in Post. My name is Kristen Gosshorn, and today we'll be speaking with Jazz Williams. Jazz, how did you get interested in post-production? Um, I, strangely, uh, Dawson's Creek. Really? Yeah, so I was, like, really obsessed with that show when I was, like, 10. Um, so it was, like, 2000. Um, so I got really into it. And as we all know, Dawson Larry is obsessed with Dawson's Creek and being a filmmaker. And that just kind of really um, acclimated me to, like, what the possibilities could be in the film industry. And I was always into technology, so video games, computers. And so it was kind of a natural transition for me to kind of get into filmmaking and specifically editing. Dawson's Creek was a while ago, right? Was that, like... Yeah. Early 2000s, or was that in the 90s? It was early 2000s. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think late 90s too, so yeah, I think so. So kind of walk us through, like how did you get started in your career? What was that process like? Yeah, so I went to Valpo in Indiana, um, and I majored in television, broadcast, and creative writing, and we started a TV channel there, and they didn't really have an engineer, so I just kind of fell into that role um, of being able to like, hook up things and know how uh, wire flow and cable flow and do all those things and that just kind of got me started. So out of college I worked at a nonprofit in Chicago, uh, Free Spirit Media. I was the production coordinator for Hoops High and so I really got to work there as an engineer and do like side editing since we do a broadcast every week and yeah it just kind of grew from there with doing like side projects because a lot of the people you work with are also artists and so we just kind of you know, hang out and do stuff together. And that just kind of really opened the door for me to do more narrative work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Hoops High is in Chicago and you moved to Wisconsin too, right? I did, I moved to Wisconsin in 2016, uh, but I moved back last year to Chicago. Um, so I was an engineer at PBS for like two years, um, but engineering, is, it's just so boring for me. And I just really wanted to edit. I was editing a lot there and I was just like, I'm enjoying more editing than I am engineering. So I just wanted to get back into that world and, you know, child was home. So why not come back and work with people I've been working with? I've done a couple web series here. So I was building my community. Um, so I'm happy to be home. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people, um, I'm also in Chicago, well, south of Chicago, and, like, being in the Midwest, sometimes it's like, people are kind of like, wait, the people do post in the Midwest? Like, how, how are you in the middle of the country, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's, I, so I've been to LA a little bit, and I've seen kind of the film com- community there, but it's so big, it's so vast, it's really kind of hard to kind of make community because everybody's always going after the same things and it's like it's a really it's really like yeah it's a really a big thing but here i felt like um artists are rooting for you they're advocating for you they're putting you up for projects and even if you are going for the same things there you know they're still like saying oh that's so great that's wonderful i hope you get it and if you they get it and you don't they try to collaborate with you and that's something that I've really enjoyed about being, you know, in Chicago as an artist. What kind of places do you find community in Chicago? Um, I mean, Mess Club, of course. Um, like, a couple of my friends do um, theater work, so that's always fun. Um, in college, I did a lot of, like, video work for the theater, so I'm a, I like theater quite a bit. Um, so I do that, and I just kind of wherever. It's mostly just hanging out with my friends lately. You know, just been in the house with my kid. So I'm itching to get back to some community at some point. Yeah, I know things have been so crazy with like the COVID lockdown and everything. 
Yeah, they have. They've been really, it's been really intense. Um, I live in Inglewood, so it's a lot quieter here until nighttime, and then everyone's just kind of outside on their porch because, you know, you've been at home for like a week and haven't really seen outside. Like, I haven't been outside since Friday, so hopefully I can, you know, go sit on the porch or something tomorrow just to feel air. Yeah, yeah, for real. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on around the country the past couple of days with the George Floyd murder and, like, the industry response. What kind of response have we seen out of the film community, and what? how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, I personally, it all feels a little bit disingenuous. It just feels like um, kind of something to do to not get the backlash of when things have settled because people will remember, you know, how certain organizations, actors, entertainers, celebrities responded to a national crisis. So, um, you know, I've, I've seen a lot, especially on Twitter, where brands or companies or actors will say, you know, we stand with black lives, this and this and that. And then you'll have these people recounting these horrible interactions with them that negates everything that they're trying to put out in terms of in support. Um, and so that's kind of what you're seeing. And even with celebrities like donating like $50 to support funds when you are, you know, very rich, it's it all makes it feel very disingenuous, very rehearsed and very problematic. So, yeah. Um, Hopefully, at some point in the course of this, they'll be more genuine with their outreach. Um, but I really don't see that happening. Yeah. Got to protect the brand. Yeah, that seems really disappointing. I mean, um, there's been some... Uh, one, of the, one of the groups that I follow is uh, Free the Work or Free the Bid, one of those two. And they actually like posted a screenshot of a bunch of different like black organizations for filmmakers. I thought that was really cool because you could like tap on the image and then follow every single one of them like right there on the screen. Um, okay. I really like that. Um, but one of the things that I think is more kind of towards what you're talking about is like the black squares, right? Yeah, that was that was a miss. There seemed to be some miscommunication about the intention of Blackout Tuesday, and so then you had all these black squares that resulted in silence and like didn't really say anything and so you're like flooding our timeline with like silence and that's just not helpful you know when it's supposed to be like you advocating for black lives you saying that you stand with black lives so like what are you saying with this black square like what is this what is your intention behind this Uh and then you get a lot of people posting these black squares you know who haven't really engaged with the movement up until that point so it's like this is a PR stunt and this is more this is demeaning this is disrespectful and you know you probably should not have done this yeah I think that like personally I felt uncomfortable with it like for a different reason but also like what you're saying is it's not it's not appreciated but but like somebody like sitting in the other room might think if I don't post this like people are gonna hate me like I was honestly a little bit worried about not posting the black square because I mean by not posting it are people gonna say that I'm racist if I and, and if, if somebody accuses me of being racist and I say, hey, I'm not racist. Like, is that racist? <laughs> like, there just seems to be so many accusations swirling around that people are like, that I feel like scared about what, I guess I care too much about what other people think, but I don't know. It's, um, I think at this point it's about knowing what is performative versus like what is actually doing the work to be um, mindful and to you know dismantle white supremacy and that's 
that is definitely not posting a black square. It's, you know, doing, educating yourself, educating your kids, um, you know, talking to your family, you know, donating in tangible ways, whether that be money, time, those are the ways that you show support, you know, the black square, like it's cute, but it doesn't really say anything. This might be a strange question, but was there ever a point in your life where you remember thinking, okay, now I get it. Now I personally understand what Black Lives Matter means. Um, I, I will say that I feel like nobody, um, no black person over the age of 10 has never had an, a racist encounter with uh, police. And so I, I don't, there's like no specific instance. It's just something you know, um, especially I went to school in Indiana and like there was a lot of racism and um, trauma, all that stuff, it's, it's generational. And so it's in the stories that you're told. It's in the things that you learn growing up, even if they don't happen to you and seeing them. So it's like from an early age, you know, even, you know, my son, he asked me the other day, is there like any place in the world that's safe for him? And he's five. And so there's not like a specific time where you're like, oh, Jesus, fireworks, where you're like, um, now this makes sense. It's just, it's kind of ingrained in your existence because it's everywhere. Yeah. I, um, if I can tell a a quick story, it's not about being black, because obviously I'm not black, but, um, like, I was part of the crowd that would say, well, all lives matter. And this was very recently, like, because this has been a pretty prominent, like, way that comes and goes for the past six years, right? We have these months that are dedicated to black, the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter divide, almost like. So last month, my mom went through this horrible experience where she was like, how do I say this without getting in big trouble? Um, her family, like she has stories her whole life. She never felt like her family was supportive of her. And she would do a lot of complaining. And as her daughter, I would hear these stories over and over and over again. And like, I wasn't sure if I really believed her or if she was like being the victim and allowing herself to be the victim. Until last month, when I like stood up for her and then just get dragged through the dirt of all the junk in my family's past where like, they treated me like they've always treated her. And they cut her out of the will, just like that she's always said that they would. And like all these things that she's always been so afraid of, like actually manifested. And I could feel like the weight of her life experience. And suddenly it was like, no, I believe you. Like, you're not just complaining. You're not crazy. Like, I believe you. And, it, and then this Black Lives Matter thing came up again. And it was like, well... How can I, I can't approach this the same way anymore because this is a systemic issue. This isn't just one life. One life is supremely valuable, but these are people's stories that are across generations. Like, how do we begin to address this in a way that people can experience change? That they won't just be, you know what I mean? I mean, I think that because All Lives Matter is only exercise to refute the claim Black Lives Matter, it's like in, inherently like racist and white supremacist tactic. And 
you know, that just kind of goes hand in hand with people doing the work to dismantle like white supremacy. Like racism isn't, you know, a black people or people of color's problem to fix. It's like white people's problem to fix. Um, but until, you know, white people can like embrace their own heritage and their own like familial lineage and because inherently all white people are racist and you have to unlearn that racism because society tells you all these things about yourself and about others and it can be really hard to unlearn that especially when everyone around you is um kind of feeding into it um and i don't really know if there ever will be a point where you know, there won't, won't be racism. I feel like too much of this country is dependent upon racism. Um, white people have to elevate themselves by keeping people of color and black people at a lower level. Like it's, it's, it's capitalism. It's all these things that kind of go into it. And until you can dismantle each and every one, we, we won't really get anywhere. You have to defund and abolish police. You have to dismantle white supremacy. You have to get rid of capitalism. Yeah, there's just a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, I don't expect it to happen in my lifetime, but I do hope that at some point we can accomplish a few of these things to make like the world better for other people, other kids like my kids. I mean, your kids shouldn't have to worry about that. Nobody's kids should have to worry about that. Right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's not great, but uh, like I said, until we attack white supremacy at its core, until we defund abolish police, until we become an anti-capitalist nation, like we're we're very much dependent upon this racism to keep the economy going, to to bolster, you know, where we're at. Like, white people can't have wealth without racism, without capitalism, without police, without prisons. Like, so it's like. Are white people ready to give up their assets? Are they ready to redistribute the wealth that they've stolen? Probably not. And until they get to that point, we're just not going to get anywhere. Okay, let's talk about the filmmaking industry because that's like where we live, right? What are some ways that we can create change within our within our industry? Um. So I feel like. <laughs> Production companies, you know, the big three, they need to be more genuine in their targets towards diversity. Um, I can't recount the number of times friends who are screenwriters who've told me that their stories are told that they're not sellable, that they're not relatable because they are not palatable for white audiences. And that that's a problem, you know, because we don't get to see ourselves ever. So if the industry does want to move towards actually being inclusive, actually doing the work, they will recognize that all stories do not have to be white stories. Like, we don't have to see every interracial couple doesn't have to include a white person. Um, the black friend doesn't have to be light-skinned with loose curls. Like, all of these, like, really ridiculous and demeaning and hurtful stereotypes about what an acceptable black person is, what an acceptable black story. And then when you have black stories, they have to be centered around trauma as if, like, that is our life 24-7, and, and it's not. Like, my life is more joy than it is, you know, traumatic moments, and I would like for that to be reflected in, you know, in the media. Um, and they can also have more transparency with pathways because it seems like these pathways are very, um, they pick people who already kind of have a footing, right? I have yet to see like one of these pathway contests for directors, screenwriters that are really focused on people with zero representation, zero connections. Every, you know somebody and that's how you're getting selected. And that's not helpful because everyone can afford to have these connections to live in LA and to do all these things. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> So it's just like, until it's like you're you're not really being honest and you want a specific type of director, you want a specific type of 
screenwriter because um, so much of it is beyond your work, right? It's your visual appearance, it's your social media presence, it's all these things because you have to be marketable. And then it's like how they determine how you're marketable. And it's it's just all these like really weird things that keeps people who are not, you know, who don't fit into these boxes, you know, out of the industry successfully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's really unfortunate because when we don't have people of diverse backgrounds in filmmaking, we don't hear genuine stories. We don't have characters, we have caricatures, right? Like, it's just so important for people of diverse backgrounds to be in filmmaking that we have, like, we have to do. We have to do this because the world needs it. Like, yeah. Um, but I totally relate to what you're saying. Like we have these op- so-called opportunities for people to break in, but the people who are breaking in are the people that already know somebody, or they already have, you know, however many thousand followers on Instagram or Twitter or wherever. Um, we need to genuinely be able to find fresh voices somehow. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's even worse for post because I have yet to see any sort of pathway situation for post production. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I looked into it. They said like the top hundred films, like two were edited by like black people, um, maybe like seven or ten by like women, and it's just like really challenging and frustrating to see because like how do you get in? How do you become an editor? And then you look and you see, oh, you know, they were, you know a PA for like 10 years okay well how does that translate to editing like that doesn't really tell me how they got to be an editor by telling me they were a PA you know like it's just all of these holes that no one is really willing to like fill in for you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah the statistics on that are I mean I can't I can't watch a movie now without noticing the absence in the credits yeah like anything that was made before the 80s like there's probably zero women in anything unless maybe one colorist and like the voices for animated characters but um yeah another part of the issue I, I i personally think is that we have a lot of like support for directors for increasing diversity for directors including like funding opportunities but when it comes to well where are the funding opportunities for sponsoring women in post-production well there there aren't any i i have not found any the opportunities that i found include hey if you have a film and you have a woman director submit it to us and maybe we'll shop it out to somebody to do the post for you which is the opposite of helpful for us it's yeah it's it's very challenging like i've been fortunate enough to have like my friends who are you know moving further along in their careers as screenwriter and directors to amplify like my work as i work on their projects but other than that it's like you would never really know how to get into the industry through posts i mean especially like animation uh special effects it's just like i i scour the credits and then i look these people up on like social media and it's like oh there's another white dude, another white dude, another white dude, another white dude, and it's just, it's really discouraging, right, when you're trying to do this for a living, because it doesn't feel like it'll ever be something you can support yourself with, um, because how, how do you do it? Like, I don't want to have to befriend some, like, weird white dude just so I can, like, support myself and feed my kids. Like, I don't want to do that. Now that you say it, you're totally right. That sounds so awkward. 
Yeah, like you just have to like, I don't want to be your friend because you likely have bad opinions and I don't want to endure that just so that I can like, you know, make a living, especially when I have talent. And I may be more talented than you are, but because I'm not, you know, like a white man, then who will, who will ever know? Yeah. Um, when I started the podcast, my goal was first to learn how to talk to people because I suck at talking to people. Um, like throughout my whole life, I've probably had as many friends as I can count on my fingers. Like, and my grandma was the one who was like, you know, you need to figure out, you need to learn how to talk to people because you're not gonna, you're not gonna do anything if you can't make friends, right? And and so, started talking to, figured out, well, who do I want to talk to? I want to talk to women who are interested in the same thing as me, and that just happens to be post production, right? So I'm meeting all these people, and it turns out that like, where am I going with this? <laughs> um, like. I've been confronting a lot of my own biases because in meeting people that share the same interests, those people are not always the same as me. And it's surprised me deeply that I could have so much in common with somebody who's so different than me. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in the industry, like, you never really know who's into what, and it's always, like, cool. Nobody's a monolith. No group of people is a monolith. So it's it's not surprising. I think what I do find mo- most surprising is, like, people, I saw someone in the comments that said, like, the ones who do break through get all the work, and that's true, and I think that's part of the problem, right, is because it opportunities are so scarce that people don't pull people up with them. They keep them down so that they can they can, you know, get all the work, they can stay elevated. And I don't really think that that's going to help make change. It's going to make it worse. You know, we have to stop being so fragile in our own existence and like pull people up with us, pull your friend up, pull this person up. That's the only way to like really, really make the industry diverse is to, you know, do the work. You're supposed to go up with your friends, not like leave them hanging just so like you can, you know, live well. Yeah. Remember where you started. Yeah, for sure. Turn around and help somebody out. How do you feel about the use of credits in our industry? Oh. Like on IMBD credits? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of indifferent. Like I've perused IMBD Pro. Um, it can be helpful. I find it most helpful for more like upcoming projects than like to figure out who's done what in the industry. But I, I kind of don't really care for credits because it creates, in my opinion, like this clout system where if you don't have this many credits or if your credit is a B-list movie versus an A-list movie, well, you know, you're not going to get any work or you're going to get smaller projects. Like the number of people who I've had tell me that the only way for me to break in as an editor is to do this huge project with these A-list people and like, and it's just like, okay, but how is that going to come about? How do you get there? Yeah. And so, like, if you're using credits to determine people's, like, value and worth and whether or not they can handle or should be on your project, then you're missing out on a lot of talent because everybody does not, you know, get the same amount of opportunity. Like, it's not equitable. There's no, like, justice. There's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some a lot of our, like, networking platforms or groups, when you want to go to a networking group, a lot of the times you have to have a certain amount of credits before you can, like, join the club. Yeah, I mean, even joining the um, the guild for editors, you're just like, bro, like, how am I supposed to accumulate all this work to be eligible to pay to join the guild? Like, it's already expensive to join, but then I have to have all this under my belt 
to like where where am I going to get these opportunities from if everybody just wants like this popular editor or this popular colorist to do all the work like you don't how do you get an opportunity so yeah Mm -hmm. it's not great so where have you like where have you found most of your opportunities honestly through friends and like word of mouth um so sometimes i assist at white house posts in downtown chicago and they mostly do like commercials and so like you find a lot of people who are in the film industry working in those places and it's just like networking like hanging out um showing your reel and i find that the the people that i want to work with the community is like really small and so um I may have done this with this person and now this other person who was a part of that same project or a different project, like it's like we have a network and you know people can vouch for my work. Um, I'm in a space to where I really only try to work with artists that I respect, um, that have values that don't harm other folks or you know like really like shitty opinions. Um, so I just really don't want to like I don't want to compromise that part of myself because it's something I pride myself on having integrity and being someone who like stands up for their community supports their community and just isn't out here to, like get a check um so I, I i think that's where it is is like being in a space to where you know people i'm working with they they know my morals they know my values and so like they can trust me to work with them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's a big deal and having that like i guess you would call that your personal brand um i mean sure I, I just call it being a decent human. <laughs> that, that can be a personal brand yeah. too, right? Yeah. Basic human decency. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm in support of human decency. Yeah, yeah. I just I don't want to be a part of any project that you know, like where they're not treating people fairly on set or like I just that's just not really something that I like want to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and I will avoid it as much as possible. Yeah. Um, I was part of a, at like I was watching a um. I guess one of those Zoom meetings, you know, we've been doing a lot of Zoom meetings um, and it was like a presentation and people were talking about filmmaking and being on set. And as an editor, like there's very few times that I've ever been on set. Um, And they were talking about like how it doesn't matter what the person's position is, pay everybody the same amount. Like, pay your DP the same amount that you're going to pay your showrunner, the same amount that you're going to pay your director. Like, does that ring true for your experience? That seems so strange to me. Yeah, that, I mean, all the productions that I've worked on, that is the stance that they've taken where everybody was paid the same. Like, um, in production, everybody's paid the same across the board. And that's something that I support because nobody's role is smaller than the other person. Like, the director can't do their job without the script supervisor. Nobody can do nothing without, you know, like, craft services. So it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just really important to make sure that people are being valued. Like, their PAs are invaluable. Pay them. Pay them well. Pay them a living wage. Don't make them, like, work you know 12 hour days and then they're still you know they have to rely on government support to be able to feed themselves or you know like to afford their rent like pay everybody the same so that that is something that i'm happy to see happening more often and i hope that's something that becomes more commonplace Um, i know in the indie world it's it's been like a, a good thing but i'm not sure if that will ever transition to hollywood so what about people in, in post-production then? Like if you have a team and you got your lead editor, right? And then you got a colorist and then you got your sound designer. Um, and I, I guess all those three people spend like a ton of time on a project. But what about your assistant editor? And what about somebody who's just like helping with the credits or something like that? Like do you pay all those people the same amount too? 
Um, I would definitely pay colorist assistant, like assistant editors are invaluable. Um, after spending time as an assistant editor and working predominantly without an assistant editor, like these positions are not positions that just because they don't get all the glitz and the glamour are any less like valuable. Like they're actually maybe more valuable because they do all the heavy lifting so that the lead editor doesn't really have to worry about, you know, backing up the project, organizing the project, Mm -hmm. you know doing line cuts like you don't have to really worry about that um so yeah i don't see why you wouldn't pay them the same um they're doing oftentimes more work than the lead editors because they're still there while editors like like oh i'm I'm gonna do this from home or i'm not gonna work today like assistant editors usually don't have that privilege and you know like you you need to respect their time and pay them (laughs) i just imagine all the assistant editors sending you the heart emojis right now I mean, I, I'm, I've spent a lot of time as an assistant editor, and I know like how much work goes into like being an assist. And um, I feel like the editors that I've worked with, they've always shown appreciation for the work that I'm doing. And it's just like I want to make sure that that is something that is common because like you are putting hours and hours just organ. I mean, think about how much time it takes to you know organize footage. I think for a project I was working on where I didn't have an assist, I had to um, sync all the audio myself. That takes like took me like a week. If I had an assist, that's not something I would have had to worry about. But that's something that they would have had to do, right? So like, why not pay them for the time that they've spent doing that? Yeah, yeah. Another interesting element of it is like how before the digital era, we would have like groups of people doing these tasks together, and now it's so streamlined and we're just expected to do everything as quickly as possible at the most affordable rate possible. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I try to keep my rates affordable mostly because I do work in the indie world. Um, I think that it becomes like a thing like, are you trying to, I love what I do and I'm not trying to be rich. I just want to be able, I just want to be comfortable. So it's, I don't really mind like the whole like affordable rate thing. Um, I do feel like everybody wants like a jack of all trades, which can be become a problem. You know, because you get someone who's like moderately good at a lot of things versus someone who's really good at a few things. Um, And I feel like that's worth paying for and that's worth having, like specializing. Like I can do a lot of things. I can, as an engineer, I worked as a video engineer. So a lot of my job was uh, coloring. So I can do well as a colorist. That's that wouldn't be a problem. But that's not something that I feel like I should be like working on. Um, I worked as an audio engineer when I was an engineer at PBS. It's definitely not something I would try to venture into like more professionally. And so it's just like, it's fun to dabble, but like I feel like we do want to have people who are specialized so that you're getting the best quality product um, that you can have, yeah. So what is your ideal role and what is your ideal project for you? I mean, so I dabble in a little bit of screenwriting, um, and I've had, you know, like, good feedback on, like, some of my work in that area, but I think I'm just, like, my ideal role would definitely be, like, maybe, like, a producer, editor at some point. Like, I'm in the space where I'm seeing a lot of the, 
the inconsistencies in the industry a lot of the you know like just the, the weird way that they handle things and I would love to be in the space to where I could advocate for other communities to have their stories told without it being gross without it being like fetishizing these communities um, and they are in control of their own narrative instead of putting in like a showrunner who has a lot of experience as a showrunner but does not have the range to understand other people's experiences outside of their own so I would love to be like in a space to advocate for them to have control of their narrative and then just like let them do like what's best to tell the story so that it's authentic to their community to them um but i really just like to edit like i love to sit in a dark room for hours and hours and just be by myself with like my screens so anything that allows them to be in my space with my screens i love it uh-huh, uh-huh. what is your what is your next step for your career um who i mean who knows COVID is such an interesting it's been an interesting phenomenon. Um, one of my friends has a project that um, he's pitching to Sundance in a couple months. And so he asked me to join the writer's room for that. So I've been, so I'm doing that. And that's like super fun to work with people, to work with friends, um, people I respect and trust. So, so who knows? I mean, will we move to LA? Who can say? Who, I mean, who, who can say? I do know I want to edit, but I'm just not quite sure how to get there. And it, right now, it seems like the only way to get there is to like create your own content and produce your own work that showcases your abilities as an editor, so that you can like enter the conversation for like other projects. Mm-hmm. Do you think that all the remote work that we've had to do over the past couple months will translate to editors being able to have careers without having to live in LA or New York? God, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Like, you can just, like, shit. I, so you can shit me a drive, but, like, those supervised edits, like, like I use Frame.io quite a bit, which I feel like can really be on par with a supervised edit because you can comment on every cut, every frame. Um, so hopefully at some point they'll be like, oh, you know, you don't need to, to live in L.A. or, you know, New York to do posts. Like, we can, there's a lot of technology that we can facilitate, but some directors do like to be in the room with you. So then it becomes like a, well, do I go to LA or New York for you know a short period of time while I do these supervised edits? If they were into that, then that would be great, right? Because you could just go for you know a month or whatever, do your supervised edits, and go home um, and you know work off proxies or whatever until you you can reconnect. But who who can say, right? Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if maybe we should spend just a little bit of time like explaining why why it's important for diversity to be able to edit in different locations. Yeah, I mean, um, I have a five-year-old. Working from home is the best thing that has ever happened to our schedule, Um, to be able to, like, be present for him when he needs me. But I'm not sure we want him to grow up in L.A., um, how would that work out? Like, he's like an outdoors kid. Like, he, he has like, you know, anxiety things. Like, do I want to put him in a space where that can be exacerbated? Or do we want to stay like where my family is? Like, you know, it's just like those things. And you really do need to give people an opportunity to do like what works best for their life without forcing them to make really like bad choices for their families just so that they can, you know, be in close proximity to the studio. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. And I, I like even people that I've talked to that are in LA uh, are like, well, how do I have the life that I had always imagined? How do I even have a family? Like yeah. they, they cannot start a family because they cannot afford to have a kid in their studio apartment that they can barely afford just to live in themselves. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very expensive to live in Los Angeles, and that is why I do not live there. Um, I do not want to pay three thousand dollars for a one-bedroom apartment. That sounds awful. Yeah. Um, so it's just—it's really hard. Like, you have to be one of the top-tier editors to afford to live in LA. Yeah. You know, you have to be one of those few editors that's making six figures a year. Oh, okay, okay. So we—we've gotten to one point here now. Because I've had conversations with local filmmakers that get their actors local, they get their director local, they communicate with writers that are local, and then when it comes to post, they send it to somebody in L.A. Because they want their editor to be an L.A. editor so they know that they have the best. Like, yeah. that hurts, that hurts us. And yeah, I, Chicago's making a name for itself in the film community with Cinespace expanding and more shows coming here. I do feel like, you know, we will kind of have our own little, you know, film oasis, but it's just going to take some time and it's going to take some trust from, you know, the Foxes and Sonys and all of them to like trust people to hire people. Like I'm very surprised that shows like The Shy that are, you know, show run by Chicago people, shot in Chicago, that are, they don't do post here. Yeah. With all, I mean, you have so many like high level post production companies in the city. You have Optimus. You have you do have White House. You have so many places where you can get the best people who have who have transitioned from LA to Chicago that you can just do post there. Um, so I'm hoping that as you know more things are shot here, that it will make more sense for them to just do post here. Okay, this might be a weird question, but like if we have these post houses that are doing commercial work, why don't we have like the Chicago MGM Studios, like the Chicago I mean, version. I mean, there, I guess there just really hasn't been a need for it, because like, Cinespace is, it's not new, but they haven't really had like as much going on as they have as of late. I mean, you got like what, six or seven shows shooting there now, and um, you know, my wife works in, she works in costume, and so they're like shooting more things, and they're shooting like a the big leap they're shooting that here now um, to replace like Empire so we have more things coming coming where Cinespace will be booked and I, I do think there will be a growing need for it it just hopefully gets put in the right hands yeah yeah okay um let's see what else do I want to talk about do you have anything in mind no I mean that I think we covered pretty much everything that's going on while we're under COVID because there's not really much happening um I have seen like they're coming out with suggestions for production to, to start soon. So that'll be interesting to see these new guidelines um, where they are more so condensing roles on set to limit um, potent risk of like getting COVID. But it'll be interesting to see how that translates and if they do, when, like when production will start. Mm-hmm. Because we are getting antsy over here. Yeah. We <laughs> need things to do. I know. Okay, well, if people want to contact you on social media and, like, say, hey, either just to get in touch with you or to connect with you for a project, like, where can they find you on social? Um, Yeah, you can find me on Instagram. Um, I'm not on Instagram that much, but I'm on Twitter pretty much all the time, and it's the same time, Jazzy J, um, on Twitter. So, yeah, I'm always open to chat about film things. Awesome. It's been so nice meeting you. Thank you for coming on the show today. Um, Absolutely, no problem. I feel like we like addressed some some hard questions and talked about some things that might be a little bit uncomfortable. But yeah, but that's yeah, it's worth it though. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jess. You have a great night, okay? Thanks, Kristen. Bye. Thanks for watching. I'd love to hear from you. 
If you enjoyed this week's episode, give us a like, leave us a question or a comment, and share with your friends. Your viewership and support helps promote women working in film. Interested in being a guest or sponsor on the show? Send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. See you next week on Women in Post.